So, Jeremy, what did you think of a humanist perspective? It was very, very interesting. It was not what I thought it would be like in the sense that, and I don't know if this is where you want to go, the church was such a reference point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in a way that I did not fully expect because in, in my head it was, you know, these are people who are trying to form something, you know, outside yeah. of that. And it's interesting because I was teaching this week and I, I teach about language and culture and things like this. And one of the readings uh, I did uh, with my students, one of the major points was that groups form oppositionally and that when mm. you're forming a new group, you want to def define it in opposition to previous groups that you have been in. And that's kind of how I'm processing that. And to me, for someone who grew up, you know, not in Christianity at all, I, I felt a little like, oh, this is, I don't know really where these people are coming from. Mm. So I was sort of like wiggling around in that regard. And it was interesting that they were defining their new place in opposition to the old place. Yeah. I remember I tried to kind of like prime you as much as I possibly could on the phone without going into like grotesque detail of <laughs> what some people have experienced in those faith communities. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to convey how some people have been traumatized in a community sense and made yeah. to feel like they won't belong if they don't adhere to certain strictures and stuff right. like that. So, And I was curious what your perspective on that would be because you don't have the perspective of growing up in Christianity. I don't have the perspective of growing up how you grew up in more of a Jewish community. Mm -hmm. um, so I really have no idea what those differences are, are like or mm -hmm. where the similarities might align. Yeah. For me, I was like, what, what, what I couldn't really get at was like, what exactly is everyone so nervous about? <laughs> <laughs> And, That's what I ask myself every day, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I kind of felt stupid for thinking that. Yeah. And maybe that's just because I've, I've been lucky in the sense that, you know, the synagogues and youth groups and summer camps and all these things that I've been part of um, have largely been very inclusive spaces, mm -hmm. especially because the sort of area, let's call it, of Judaism that I'm part of, Reform Judaism, is very much like an individuation kind of approach. Like you work it out in your own way and it's not everyone has to do the same thing and everyone has to be the same way. And so it seems to have this feeling of like come as you are. Mm -hmm. And that does not seem to be the impression that um, is given off in a lot of the communities that um, a lot of people in the group were leaving. Mm. And so I think that a lot of the tension that we were talking about was like, is it possible to come as you are in a group that has an identity? And where that gets really complicated, I mean, you mentioned reform Judaism mm -hmm. and where that gets really complicated, I imagine, and maybe this isn't true, but in a more orthodox tradition, mm -hmm. if I can make the analogy between that mm -hmm. and fundamental Christianity, that's a little bit more complicated when you're a group whose identity is rooted in biblical literalism, mm -hmm. that gets a little bit more complicated because mm -hmm. suddenly interpretation is called into question. So the interpretation of one's faith um, taken loosely is then the interpretation of one's community and one's identity taken loosely. And fundamentalists want you rooted, cemented firmly mm -hmm. in one belief, in one tradition. Mm -hmm. So real, like any attempt to 
and this isn't like entirely what I grew up in, but I can see some people's background looking like any attempt to reform one's beliefs or one's interpretation of what community could look like mm-hmm. or what individuation could look like within mm-hmm. that community is suddenly a threat to the dogma behind the community. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely see how that could be the case. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of what you were, that's a lot of what people are tending to be nervous about mm. in, a, in a group like this. But interestingly enough, that I think was the first night that we saw some like really high spirits. It mm. gave people an opportunity to view their engagement with community from a place of agency and from a place of control and individuality and freedom, really. And I remember when you first told me about this concept of Keva and Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. um, which we talked a little bit on about on our on our Grand Honey episode, feeling exactly that, feeling like, A, this is something that has been missing in my experience in Christianity and my experience with religion altogether, and B, if we adopted this in more faith communities, if we... If more people who had that resentment from growing up in the church knew about concepts like this and knew that other traditions were celebrating and practicing concepts like this, there would be a lot less of that nervousness to go around. And there would be a lot more of the feeling free to approach community as an individual. So, Mm -hmm. um, But why don't you talk briefly about the concept of Keva and Kavanaugh again, and maybe we can go from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I came to this concept through um, my work at uh, a Jewish summer camp. The sort of focal point is um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a very influential rabbi in the mid-20th century, worked a lot on civil rights and things like this. And the concept is essentially that, like, Jewish prayer in the most traditional setting is done three times a day and is very ritualized. And you, when you see um, a very orthodox Jewish person praying, it's like they are whizzing through it. Like they're going really, really, really fast. Um, and I actually don't know what the reason for that is, but part of me thinks like, oh, maybe these are just like some busy people. They got a lot of prayers to say, like we got to move. And the idea is that if all you're doing is saying the words, then they're actually not going to mean anything to you. And this is especially important, I think, in Judaism because the prayers are in Hebrew. And if you're not constantly returning to the source English text, then you will actually just become disconnected from the language itself and it will just become a collection of sounds that you've memorized because you've heard them so many times. And so uh, a Jewish person in a prayer ceremony has this sort of like fundamental struggle of like, there's so much prayer happening, it might not be in a language that I speak, and so how do I build a connection to it. And so Heschel's concept is that the structure of the prayer, which is keva, um, the thing that happens every single time, is only half the story. The other half of it is kavanah, which is intention, and that's the thing that you bring to it. So on any given night, let's say um, we're singing um, Shalom Rav, which is a prayer um, for peace, I might be thinking about peace in my own home or in my community or in Ukraine or, you know, wherever I might be thinking that that might be necessary. And by returning to the text, I'm able 
to sort of center my thinking and my experience for a moment in like the concept of peace and what I want from it, rather than just saying like the prayer says, this is what peace is and this is what peace is. And it comes from God and yada, yada, yada. And so to me, the concept is really helpful, not only when talking about prayer, but also in talking about um, different kinds of communities in general. So like, what are the rules of this community? What are the things that keep it operating? And what are the parts that are most interesting and meaningful to me at this particular time and on this particular day? Which doesn't mean that you don't have obligations to the community because the structure still matters, but that the structure itself is not the full meaning that you yourself have are obligated in a way to bring your own meaning to it. So I'm curious because we have three completely different perspectives here. We have a Reformed Judaism perspective, a fundamentalist Christian perspective, and Matt has more of a secular perspective. And Matt, I'm wondering if sitting through that presentation and kind of absorbing that information changed your perspective on community at all. Presentation is a generous word, <laughs> but <laughs> there were no, no I really, It was cool. I, I, um, I don't know that it changed any of my like, you know, kind of fundamental understandings of community, but it did change some of my impressions of things that religion can include, mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. It reminded me of, um, I think it's, her name is Carol Dweck. Have you heard of that psychologist, Carol Dweck? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, fixed in growth mindsets. It mm -hmm. reminded me almost of that, where like, I think from the outside looking in, a lot of religions, especially the ones that lean more fundamental, um, they can seem like a fixed mindset thing, like a fixed mindset operation where it's like everything has been predetermined and you live in this box and God help you if you get out of that box. Mm -hmm. And I really liked this concept. You know, it seems more like there's some malleability to it. Like you bring mm -hmm. yourself as you are that day and this structure is here to contain you in a safe way so you can kind of like poke around with that and explore it. But like you change, like you know, you, you're the boat, but you don't pretend to lay claim over the ocean, you know? And yeah, I, I really kind of like that. Like that's, um, it's something I've always associated with just loose free flow and spirituality, but never really mm -hmm. knew was, um, codified anywhere. So yeah, I dug it. Yeah. And the, the interesting part of it is, is the free flowingness is like Judaism loves rules. Like it's obsessed with rules. Everything is a rule. And like, there's just like books of like rabbis, like debating over the rules. And so sometimes <laughs> the idea that like Judaism can be free flowing is kind of wild to think yeah. about. Uh, but actually, like you're right, in certain ways, it, it can be. Well, it seems like the perfect balance in a way too. It's like, and I guess in that respect, it did change some of my ideas of community, but it shows you that, that balance that can happen where community exists for a purpose, even if you're not thinking about it. Like it gives you the right amount of structure at the right times so that you are safe to mm -hmm. explore or be present or be mindful without kind of, you know, self-immolating. But it's also loose enough that you're not feeling guilty for, you know, changing basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I was cool. It was, a, it was a good presentation. Thank you. I was reading this book. Um, I don't remember who wrote it. It's over there. I should look it up. Um, it's called The Girl in the Tangerine Scarf. And it's about um, a woman who emigrates from a majority Muslim country to the United States in like the 70s and settles in like Indiana or like some like very rural area. 
And the book is very much about how she largely holds on to her history and her traditions and all of these things, but the spirituality comes to mean something different because when she was younger, it was just following laws and then it became more about like how to live a good life and like what character is and things like this. And I actually wonder if this concept is more pronounced in spaces where the religion is not the dominant religion mm, or the majority way of thinking. And and I mean, it's, it's a, it's a short comparison, you know, between Judaism and Islam. And obviously there's a lot of complexity there, but I do wonder if not being like the dominant group might have something to do with it. Makes a lot of sense that it would. I mean, I, I did a um, social psych major last year and there was a lot of, just in group dynamics in general, saw a lot of studies where like they change when you shift that minority majority balance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're like a very, like very, very minority minority in, mm -hmm. in a society where even your cultural values might not align perfectly. Like it can shift things, it can entrench people and mm -hmm. not, not necessarily in a bad way, but just, you know, it does change the color a bit. So yeah, I could totally see something like that happening. We're also recording this a few days after we've had the follow-up meeting to the one that you sat in on. I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah. So our next topic ended up being, it started with one thing, but it ended up being something different. Um, and I love it when that happens. We very organically kind of shifted from, okay, how does our individuality lead to community enrichment to what is the difference between beliefs and values? <laughs> mm. And I thought of this while you were talking about that book where like a belief system is there so that you can practice your individual values within a structure. Does that make sense? Yeah. It took me a second okay. to piece it together. <laughs> <laughs> like a belief system, it's a, is, is a structure that reinforces your individual values or the values that you hold for yourself. But what we were talking about was that like mm. specifically within the realm of, of like secular humanism and stuff, People who have had falling outs, fallings out with a community or with their family or like through some sort of difference in belief, there has to be a building back up of shared values. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think that values exist as a result of belief systems, but that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Belief systems exist as a structure within which we can practice those values. And so the building back up of relationship between people after that deconstruction has happened is rarely on values that are specific to religion or values that are specific to those belief systems. Really, there are common values shared between pretty much all people. So we're talking about do, does ideology dictate value? Does a belief system di dictate value? And it usually doesn't. Usually people value honesty, even if there isn't a commandment telling them to be honest. Usually people value peace, even if they're not necessarily a pacifist, you know? And so like, there are all these ideological differences that we may have, but the foundations of our value system as humans don't really change hmm. based on ideological shifts. But I hmm. think that those belief systems tend to exist more as a structure within which we can ritualistically and communally practice values. So it's like thinking about that, that book that you were talking about, the girl in the tangerine skirt, is that what it's Scarf. called? Scarf. Thinking about that, it's, it is just kind of like bringing a piece of home with you. 
you know, it's sort of, I don't, I don't have a touchstone for how to practice individual values or cultural values within a new communal system. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great way to bring those values with you and keep a structure with you. It's interesting because like you said, like peace is something that's valued by everybody, but like peace looks differently in different places. Definitely. And it's the enactment of those values that are kind of like the micro level thing, like the surface level that people actually like bump up on the easiest. Yeah. Because it's the, it's the harder thing to get to. And so I might go into, you know, a community of people and being like, oh, like these people are kind of different from me because like they do this, this and this and this, but they might do those things because they care about the same stuff that I do. To them, it just manifests in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I also don't know if belief always super like is a structure for values because I can have belief in things that I don't care about and values are things that I care about. Like I believe there are aliens, but like it doesn't really matter to me. Like it doesn't affect my day to day, but like honesty does and like loyalty does. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's the kind of belief you're talking about. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I'll save a lot of this for the next episode that we do to, to debrief. But I think someone was saying like a belief is something that, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a meaning making tool. Hmm. You know, it's a, it's a philosophical suggestion that may or may not help you to make meaning out of the unknown or out of the more chaotic elements of existence. Mm -hmm. Whereas a value is something a little bit more concrete, Hmm. something a little bit more tangible, the more that you feel it interpersonally validated or the more that you feel it like there's actually like a somatic feeling that you can get from holding true to a value Mm -hmm. and feeling it reinforced, Mm -hmm. you know, especially within community. So values are a lot more morally charged, I think too. In a lot of cases, like beliefs can be to an extent, I think, but like at a certain point they definitely, when that becomes, I think like the center, it Mm -hmm. becomes a value in a lot of ways. Do you think there's a difference between a, like a belief and a supposition in this context, mm. like, could you um, subdivide belief further, or is it just that's not <laughs> the context here? I feel like supposition has more of a uh, more of the connotation that it's like a hypothesis. That's kind of what I mean, though. Like I, when we were having the discussion, I was thinking like you could align belief, one definition of belief, with supposition and have that be true, and everything else could kind of lean more towards the value column. But if you separate belief from that definition of belief, it just kind of becomes a less defined version of a value, you know? Hmm. So, because I was thinking like a belief is like something that you kind of hold to be true or hold to be just or hold to be whatever about your world. And it's it's a flag that you plant. It could be moved in relation to some new value. But, you know, the values are kind of the the through lines. They're the laws of your universe. Hmm. But in reality, a, a belief in that sense is not much more than a supposition. It's just something you've cobbled together based on your worldly understandings and your a priori knowledge or whatever and something you go by. But it's not necessarily based on anything else. Like it's not based on anything freestanding in your world. Hmm. It's based hmm. more on your observations of those things. So are you saying like because I believe 
I shouldn't use the word belief in this context. That's super confusing. Um, <laughs> because I think that these, like, certain things are right and, then, like, these values are correct. Then I believe that the right thing to do yeah. is this. Yeah. And yeah. that would be a belief. Which is a really fine line, and I don't even know if it's a useful line or a real line at all. I, I feel like there is a fundamental difference in how community is fostered in Christianity and in Judaism that leads to that nervousness that we were talking about before. Hmm. And that leads to that sort of more fear and anxiety going into a into new communities with those same things. Like I was telling Matt the other day <laughs> that all anybody, all any like former evangelical Christian wants is to be able to go into a church and speak with a pastor and to say, I don't believe these things anymore. And for the pastor to say, that's fine. You're good. You're not going to hell. I believe that your values as a human are, are good. And for that sort of unconditional acceptance to be there. Hmm. But you don't need to be accepted by a pastor if you're not a part of the church and you don't believe what that pastor believes. So what are you doing in a church to begin with and why are you even speaking? So it's like your need for acceptance from other community leaders or other authority figures carries over into other parts of your world, like carries over into inappropriate facets of your life that have nothing to do with faith that have nothing to do with adherence to those sorts of strictures, but they're there with you. And I'm sure that this is not specific to Christianity. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that people habituate to that sort of tension from other traditions and from other past experiences. Would you say that that sounds more specific to Christianity? Do you know of that happening in the Jewish world of people carrying that kind of tension with them from those experiences or... Well, there is no hell in Judaism. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot less... Punitive, like, there's a lot less, co not less consequence, but less punitive consequence. Less fear of judgment. Yes. And so the, the, the questions are always, like, what would God want us to do in this situation? Presuming that, like, what that thing is, is, like, the right thing to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's like drawing a clean line from like a thing God wants to right thing to do, which, you know, sure, but is certainly not built on this premise of we like tally up the bad things and you win or you lose. And to me, I think that kind of can't be ignored at like the center of the entire enterprise, mm -hmm. because then it really does become like a more open ended search if there is not a fear of eternal damnation, then being wrong is about doing the wrong thing to someone else hmm. or doing the wrong thing to yourself. Yeah. And it has like naturalistic consequences. And so it turns the burden not like onto you and your like doom or not, but onto the actual community. I think, I don't know, like this is like, this is the way that I have always approached it and I've always thought of it. And it's important to point out that like my Jewish experiences are very like community oriented. Right. And like, even like the way like music functions in those settings is like, you know, there's someone up front who's singing 
Um, and their job is to get everyone to sing because when everybody mm-hmm. sings, we feel like we're a community and that's nice. It's often not actually about the words in a lot of cases. And so what I think Judaism has done, or at least, you know, Reform Judaism, the first one I'm part of, et cetera, et cetera, has done a really good job of is like pivoting a little bit and making itself more of a community-oriented space. And I think it's able to do so because if you were to sit down with the rabbi and talk about Leviticus, like you would not be talking about sodomy. Like you would be talking about like, why are there laws? What yeah, do right. laws do? Do they make us better? Like those would be the kinds of things you'd be talking about at Torah study. That I do think is a fundamental difference that matters a lot. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in what I would refer to as reform Christianity um, <laughs> or like any sort of progressive circle, circles of Christianity. But it was progressive in a way because like I, I was shocked the first time that I entered like a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or mm. anyone that kind of does more old world traditions. It's so dark in there. Have you noticed that? What? When you go into church, it's always so dark. Yeah, I grew up in the brighter ones. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way that I grew up, we it was a very lively tradition. It was a very, like, we did, we played contemporary worship music and there was a worship team, a full band on stage and like, not quite like what you see in mega churches and stuff like that, but the same sort of genre, you know, there's sort of a dissonance that I feel when I think about the concept of like reform, because in my head, that was always, you know, make, being able to make the comparison between how, what I grew up with and what my Catholic friends grew up with. I was like, Oh, I definitely had the better version of worship. I definitely had the better version of getting able to sing and dance and, be a part of a lively congregation rather than singing stale hymns every Sunday. So I'm, I'm trying to paint the picture that like it was a little bit progressive in comparison to some other churches, but not progressive in the sense that I ever felt like I was truly free to ask questions. Hmm. You know, the tradition within Judaism is that if you ask a rabbi a question, he'll answer you with another question. <laughs> yeah. And it becomes a discourse rather than a... Yeah. I don't want to say rather than a teaching, but it's never here is our solid foundation that is all you can believe in. Yeah. Or you'll get like a story like, well, let me tell you about Shlomo. He lived in the yeah. <laughs> and then was ten minutes about Shlomo and you're like, What does that mean, Rabbi? He goes, Whatever you want it to mean. Now get out of my office. And then it's like, What? <laughs> yeah. Um what I was trying to get at was I was I was kind of trying to paint the scene of growing up in a more musical version of Christianity right Mm. where I could become a musician within that space I could kind of be fostered my growth could be fostered by my dad who was in a Christian band and all of his friends I grew up around a ton of musicians and there's a part of me that believes that had I accepted the responsibility of maintaining those relationships after I lost my faith, after I started questioning all of these things about having a Christian upbringing and all these things that I was raised to believe, that those relationships could have continued unharmed, that I would still have all those people in my life, that it felt more like I was losing my foundation than they were losing their foundation. I feel like 
older people, when they develop relationships with younger people that they are helping to foster, probably their foundation for that relationship is much more than just you have the same beliefs or you're part of the same faith system, right? As a kid, it doesn't so much feel like that. So I think that had I had the wisdom back then to go like, well, we still have the same values or we still have similar values anyway. And we don't need this belief system to agree on the values that we have. Then there's sort of an onus on me to say like, I can be an individual here. It just didn't feel that way. And there's also an onus on the people who you still want to be in relationship with to accept the new you. I think that that's the more difficult part. And I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from. Yeah. Because it is easier to say, oh, like, we still share the same values um, if you are the God-forsaking, you know, heathen, which is, you know, a a very unkind way (laughs) to to, to paint this. But I do think that if you are in that belief system, um, you might say, like, you know, this person doesn't share our values anymore because he left. Mm -hmm. And so there might be that fear of, if I leave this, will I be accepted? And there's definitely an argument that I've heard thousands of times about does morality exist outside of a book of rules? And if you don't have the book of rules, that is the Bible anymore. If you don't have a community that enforces those rules anymore, then do you have a moral code to live up to? So if you're not agreeing on the same version of morality, then it's easy to feel like you are being labeled a heathen because it's like, oh, suddenly I'm basically a criminal in these people's eyes because I'm godless. Mm-hmm. So say I would participate in jam sessions with my dad and all of his friends and that became a tradition. And I could then approach those same traditions as an agnostic. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to be there as part of like a Christian music group. But I could still go there with my individual intention of having a shared experience with people because like playing music together is certainly a spiritual experience. It's not a spiritual experience within the code of Christian of spirituality that exists within Christianity, Mm -hmm. but it's still a spiritual experience. And I think that is what a lot of people miss out on is when they equate spirit to the version of spirituality that exists within the religious tradition. But we Mm -hmm. all still need spirit. We all still need human connection. We all still need the things that fulfill us, whether socially, interpersonally, or alone. Mm -hmm. But so much of the time, spirit only exists within the rigors of conventional spirituality and is less a thing that we can strive for individually. Or at least that's kind of how we internalize it. So I think, I I mean, I've seen a lot of people over the past few years that I've met through the liturgists and also just people that I that I grew up with that have kind of gone through a, a deconstruction of Christianity and are building it back up for themselves, where they have had to make spirituality more of an individualistic pursuit first in order to once again make it more of a, a community pursuit as well. Mm-hmm. It has to exist as both, but I think like you have to approach it selfishly because you're so used to trying to fit into a community. You're so used to trying to serve your church or serve the people who, whose approval you need. Right. So there's a, there's a selfishness that has to go into it at first when you're rebuilding that. And I think the point I'm getting at is that 
and I'm beginning to at this point for a really long time. <laughs> if you're allowed to be at least a little bit self-serving from the get-go, if it is encouraged for you to act with your own self-interest in mind from the start, then that's not an issue. Then you're not feeling pressured by, by community to do what they think would serve them. I see some kind of like maybe strange parallels between this and, you know, like there's a tenet of like AA and things like that where you're supposed to not be in relationships for a year after yeah. you start. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a thing. Like when you start a program like that, they sort of encourage you not to be in any relationships for a year. And that's a huge... Or make <laughs> any big decisions. Yeah, like kind of yeah. just keep some status quo. And that... Makes sense. Really... um deters a lot of people like that's a terrifying mm. and lonely concept you know because you've like yeah. all you've got is emptiness and, and pain it's like you want to find a way to plug that wound but like there's something it's always struck me like when people in these groups like talk about that feeling of wanting like kind of you know wanting a fully accepting community and also wanting individuation and like this really stark sense of self that maybe there's some version of that that could apply here like maybe it's advisable after leaving a very um tight-knit or like fundamentalist community to spend a year or some appointed amount of time mm -hmm. not necessarily avoiding social contact or avoiding community interactions but like not signing the lease like just trying a bunch of different things trying different places mm -hmm. but don't feel like don't feel like your identity has to click in and even if it does, don't trust it yet. You know, like you don't even know what it is yet, let alone these people. And kind of just giving stuff some some room to grow. I don't know if that's the way people approach it or if it's even just a way people aren't realizing they're approaching it or if it's just completely unapplicable to this. But it, I've thought about it a few times when people have kind of shared their stories that like as hard as it must be to sort of take that breath and take that step back because all you want is, is warmth. It also is like you've got to you can't really have your cake and eat it too. Like you can't find people to accept the full you necessarily if you don't know what the full you is yet. Mm -hmm. There's this like ancient, I don't know if ancient is the right word, old, rather old Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who um, famous for many things, one being making the worst sandwich in the history of the Jewish people. Um, <laughs> that like you eat on Passover and it's called the Hillel sandwich. And I'm like, look, Hillel was good, but the sandwich is garbage and we just like need to move on. Um, <laughs> and it's like, got <laughs> there's this, uh, we're on a on tangent, but I'm getting back to your point, Matt, I promise. It's got haroset, which is like apples and nuts and like wine, which is good stuff on its own between two pieces of matzah with like a slather of horseradish. And, like, that's what does it for me. I'm like, there's just way too much happening here. I'm sorry, hello. You had some good ideas. But you really screwed the pooch on this one. Um, so, anyway, Rabbi Hillel, hugely respected man, um, has this teaching that um, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am not for others, who am I? And so I think what you're sort of, like, pointing out here, Matt, like, there's this obligation to yourself in order to, like, look after yourself because if you are not for yourself, nobody will be for you mm, and you yeah. need to like afford respect 
and identity building and all these things for yourself. But then if you are only for yourself, then you are not part of these broader value systems that matter. And I think the communities themselves have an obligation to remember both sides of that just as much as people do. And I think communities often think very much about their mode and their plan and not necessarily the many different plans that might be happening in the group. It was interesting, Joel, that you were talking about music. Are either of you familiar with Adam Neely? Yeah. No, I'm okay. Not. So Adam Neely is um, a bass player and like a music theory YouTube guy. I adore his material. And he has a video about contemporary Christian music. Oh, I think I watched that. Yeah. Yeah. And the sort of fundamental premise of the video is like what he perceives as like a flaw in CCM is that the individual players are encouraged to like sit back as much as possible in order for like the song to be at the forefront. And so it denies the players like what he describes as like the ecstatic experience of playing. Right. Yeah. And so I I was thinking about your example, Joel, and I was like, you know, like you're a great musician and I would wonder what it would be like to be in that setting for you for a long time. Like, would you feel like you had the chance to grow? I don't know. Mm. And so I think that this is sort of about the community being able to be open to others. And that's kind of only possible when it is not like full steam ahead, like one thing. And not every community can afford to do that because that's not its purpose. Yeah. When you were saying that quote from Rabbi Hillel, I thought of actually my relationship to music. Hmm. Because what's been on my mind a lot lately, I think I've said it on the podcast like three times so far this year, (laughs) is, uh, I have this fear that if I don't create content for people to engage with and that shows my feelings then my feelings will never be known and that people won't engage with me at all, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have this sort of like childhood fear that if I want to be known, I have to create content to be known through. I have to like be an artist in order for my individuality to be seen, right? Mm. And then I was thinking recently about pre-pandemic social life for me. Mm-hmm. And how I was a lot more engaged with community. I was a lot more just like doing stuff all the time. I was playing a lot of shows and getting a lot of stage time, but I was also hosting a lot of shows and giving other people just a chance to be together in community and have shared experiences and like doing that as much as I possibly could. And so what I was realizing was that like when I was more engaged in community, I was less concerned with my artistic output hmm. because I wasn't seeing my relationships in that abstraction. I wasn't seeing Mm. my relationships with people as I have to make the opportunity for you to know me. I have to make the opportunity for you to appreciate me because I was putting myself out there vulnerably and creating the opportunity that way, but without consciously doing it, like habituating to having those social experiences and being in relationship with people without having that, insecurity at the center of it right Mm -hmm. so the way that i've always made music is if i'm not for me no one will be for me Mm -hmm. i have to consciously create these opportunities or else they won't happen Mm -hmm. but then if i'm for if i'm not for others then who am i Mm -hmm. i think that has begun to supersede the former Mm. over the years where 
I want to be more the person who is a community facilitator Mm -hmm. and less of the person that is like counting on my individuality to somehow be recognized by people. And then I'll finally feel appreciated, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like that has shifted over the years for me in a very profound way. And I lost sight of it because of the pandemic and because social lives have just been like completely screwed for two years now. But yeah, I lost sight of it and then remembered recently how it felt when I was most involved in community. Mm-hmm. I think I was like almost back to that place where it felt like the church congregation mm. as a kid when it felt, when I didn't question it, you know? Yeah, I guess you could say that the like danger of this whole premise of this whole conversation is a version of self-centeredness in community. Like I am in community because it is good for me. Yeah. And that's a difficult part because like I've, I've definitely been guilty of this of like, Oh, like I helped people. And then that made me feel like I did something good. And like, I did it so that I would feel good. And like, not always cause I cared that much about helping. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'll cop to that. And part of me has like always felt a little bit like, Oh, well who like, doesn't matter. Cause like they got helped anyway. Right. Like a good thing yeah. did happen. And I think that the important thing is like, you can and you should be part of these things because they make you feel good. At the same time, the responsibility cannot be purely to yourself. And you have to find ways to give to others that are not purely for yourself. That's been a topic that's been super interesting to me throughout these um, the weekly meetings, just that idea of how self-centeredness fits in in a community setting. Cause it's one of those mm-hmm. things. I mean, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole. It's one of my favorite ones, but <laughs> it goes on forever, but it's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that thinks like even the selfless act is self-serving in a way, but I mm-hmm. also don't think that that's necessarily wrong or selfish. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of have found in my own life, at least like when you let go of that fear of the selfishness and you allow the self-servingness that, you know, you can, find a more breathable sense of communal morality in a way, which is kind of nice. Like if you think about like the act of helping, like say you, you're doing like Habitat for Humanity or something and you go down there purely for the, I don't know, the tax write-off of the flight or for the <laughs> just the, the bump in your ego that, you know, when you post the Instagram picture and you get to feel like uh, I'm, I'm doing good <laughs> things in the world. Like yeah, that's not necessarily the most spiritually plugged in experience you could be having, I'd say, like if you were doing that. But if the goal of the helping, like if the goal of the organization and the goal of the project is to house a family that is currently unhoused, then in a way, all you're doing is finding a very efficient and satisfying way of tricking yourself into doing the right thing, which means the right thing is still being done. And the alternative would be the right thing isn't going to be done because you'll find a more removed way of satisfying your ego. Hmm. But then the flip side to that too can be like within a community, you still have to find a way to like donate a little part of yourself, you know, like give a little something there that isn't self-serving in any way, like give a little bit of your money or give a little bit of your time or give a little bit of your ideology or something like sacrifice something so that the whole thing can get better. You know, it's like if you go hiking and you love hiking and you see like trash on the ground, like pick it up so that, or you leave trash on the ground, pick it up so that it stays nice for everybody. Like, Mm -hmm. I think those things don't have to be mutually exclusive and they make it a little difficult to process your ideology specifically with regard to that morality or process your identity specifically with regard to that morality. But 
to me, that's always been kind of the end of it. Like that's, that's sometimes tricky for me to conceptualize internally, but the end results of everything are the same. And the times in my life when I've been able to get them to coexist cleanly, nothing has changed on the surface and I've actually been a hell of a lot less anxious. Because I think, Joel, did I bring that up at one of the early meetings? I, I know I'd stopped bringing it up at the meetings, but because um, <laughs> it's just something like I can accept, like this isn't a place where everybody is mentally. I don't know. I don't know that I'm in that place for any healthy reasons. You know, it's just kind of where I am. But like when a lot of people were talking about like joining a community and your first step was doing it for others. And I kind of like pushed back against it a little bit. It's like, well, but why are you? there if you're getting absolutely nothing from it if it's a complete net loss every time you show up why would you do that to yourself mm. and i don't personally i just don't consider that a virtue like that <laughs> amount of self-sacrifice i'm not saying that it's a sin but no. i think it is maybe a it's unhealthy like it might be a cognitive issue or something or like a you know a psychiatric problem i think one thing you're picking up on is that there's I don't want to say like a savior complex or anything, but there's a motivation that some people in that group would have to be a part of a group to show that other people that there's a better way yeah, to maybe. be in a community, you know? And another thing that we I remember we were talking about, and we certainly covered on our debrief of one of the meetings, was that people felt like being a part of small groups ministry, there was a consensus that that needs reform, that that needs, you know, small groups ministry kind of exists so that the group can be there. So that like, if if the group isn't there, then people won't take part in it. And then that's something that the church doesn't have anymore. Mm -hmm. So you want the group more than you want to cater to the individual needs of the people in the group. So I think a lot of people, like Jeremy was saying, forming community in opposition to blank or to other communities. I think a lot of people are speaking from that place where I think mm. people say like, I've experienced this small groups ministry thing, or I've experienced this, the purpose of the community, the identity of the community means more than the identities of the individuals within the community. Mm. And it's this whole holistic versus gestalt thing that I love talking about. <laughs> um, and I think what you're, what you're picking up on is partly that. Partly that people want to ad address community in opposition to what they've seen in the past and felt in the past. No, I, I would agree. Yeah, and I mean that's part of why I don't, I don't like to bring that up in those kinds of settings, unless it's like pretty organic. Because it just, it doesn't feel. It's not a flaw. Like it's not like a thing that like I would ever want to like call somebody out on just because I happen to feel that way. But it is something that like if you zoom out and like take kind of the abstract or philosophical tack with some of these topics like that's always something i find myself struggling with when there's a conversation about community or, or altruism or even just sociability and stuff it's like the idea that there is any truly selfish act or selfless act mm. is something that i just don't think is like i don't want to say it's not practical but i think it's it's a thing that absorbs a lot of um moral and philosophical and intellectual energy that could be better spent doing good you know, it's like sh shooting for some insane utopia that only exists in an experimental vacuum and all the energy that you spent doing that to make sure that you still feel okay could have been spent making the experiment that you're living in better for you and for the people you're with. Mm. But that yeah. might be depression. 
also. So I, I am not no. necessarily going to rule that out. <laughs> I, I think that sounds pretty hopeful, actually, because it, it takes away a lot of the obligation of like being the perfect person. Yeah. And it then sort of frees you up to do more. And like you said, to do more good. So, yeah, I I don't I don't see that as depressing at all. <laughs> thank you. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you thank for having you for, me. It was a great time. Yeah, and th- thanks for helping to lead that meeting, too. Because like I said, I think it put a lot of people in much higher spirits than previous meetings had, had done. And um, this past week, I definitely felt that carrying over into into the newer topics. And um, it's only a six-week thing, but we're going to try to keep it going. So mm. if you're ever able to drop in on another one, that would be great. Yeah, could do. Yeah, thanks again, both of you. This was a great time. Yeah, for sure. It was great having you, man.